Hi there. My name is Lucas Weiss, and I am the host of the Weiss Sports Quarantine Chronicles. For today's episode, I'm joined by Mark Saxon, the St. Louis Cardinals reporter for The Athletic. In this episode, I chat with Mark about his baseball media career, covering baseball on the West Coast, his approach to covering the sport nationally, his transition to The Athletic, as well as the challenges of covering this bizarre 2020 season. The Wii Sports Quarantine Chronicles is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to episode 63 with Mark Saxon on the Wii Sports Quarantine Chronicles. All right, on today's episode of the Wii Sports Quarantine Chronicles, I am joined by Mark Saxon. He is a senior writer at The Athletic who covers the St. Louis Cardinals. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the pod today. Oh, it's my uh, pleasure, and I, I really appreciate you reaching out from across the border and up there in Toronto and everything. So I'm looking forward to uh, providing whatever information information and insights that I can Lucas well absolutely and you know we'll get into a bit of your career path in a moment but obviously the big news of the day is baseball is is going on a path to starting its season here in 2020 teams are supposed to be reporting to spring training July 1st so I'm just curious for you I mean what you sort of think of this, you know, plan to, to start the season after what was a very tumultuous negotiation between the MLB and MLBPA. Yeah, I think you used a good term. It's a path. They have a path to restarting this season. To me, there are like a hundred things that could derail it. And, and we have to be realistic about that because we are seeing cases going up in a lot of U.S. states. Um, particularly certain cities. Houston is a mess right now from everything I see. Um, Florida is a mess right now. Arizona is a mess right now. These are places that have several teams. So we're going to see how it goes. But, um, you know, I do think there's a genuine excitement of, of getting guys back out there and people being able to watch something on TV in the evening. And I think potentially the competition could be really cool. So let's it's just kind of stage by stage. Let's see how it's going. Um, but I think a lot of people are happy that there's at least a movement toward baseball now. And Mark, I mean, for you, I mean, you know, baseball coverage, you know, it's normally a lawn season, 162 games. You know, you get to go to a bunch of different ballparks and talk to a lot of different people. But now it's 60 games and there's – well, from one of my assumptions, it's a lot, going to be a lot of virtual conference calls. So what's that challenge going to be like for you as a reporter used to a completely different way of reporting on baseball and having to change it overnight? Yeah, I think it'll be significant. I think, you know, just the act of having a conversation, um, Lucas, if you and I were at a coffee shop or in your living room sitting down to have this conversation, we'd have more information, right? We'd be conversing in a little bit better way. We're making do with these Zoom calls now, and that looks like that's what interviews are gonna be like, at least for the short term or the medium term. When will they get back to in-person interviews? I don't know, but it's, it's a significant blow, particularly, I think, for people like myself who work at The Athletic, where it's a subscription site, and so the notion is to have something different from maybe the other reporters in a market. 
something that can only be gotten through one-on-one interviews. So we'll see how accommodating teams are in terms of setting up those one-on-ones. But definitely for me right now, there's some anxiety. There's some worry about whether I can do my job as I think I need to do it. Well, especially when the job relies on, you know, going in the clubhouse and having those in-person conversations and getting those little nuggets and tidbits that make you stand out as a reporter. And now that that's, you know, blocked due to the pandemic, it just makes it a lot more challenging. So, but I guess for you, I mean, having, you know, what's the, what have these, you know, few months been like for you just trying to come up with new ways to create content? It's kind of been, um, it's kind of been fun on a certain level because it's tested, it's tested me and I think it's tested probably yourself and others who are kind of doing this, you know, doing, you know, covering this sports world because suddenly there's no content, Mm. right? All the guys are sent back home to their living rooms, just like you and I are sitting in our dens or our living rooms or our bedrooms or our apartments and doing our, you know, so there was no content. And so we had to get creative, right? And um, I did a story, believe it or not, on my uh, 89-year-old uncle's autograph collection (laughs) and how he has Joe DiMaggio and Kennesaw Mountain Landis and all these really kind of early 20th century uh, baseball stars in his autograph book because he used to be a season ticket holder at Sportsman's Park here in St. Louis. And so that was an example of kind of an outside-the-box story I wouldn't have been able to do. Um, some of it is nostalgia, talking about former Cardinals teams or other franchises. And so you had to get a little creative. Sometimes you weren't doing reporting so much as research, right? And, and finding fun lists for people and things. So I think it was a time like where hardcore sports fans were still looking for, for content. And so we had to provide it. And I think, I think, again, on the creativity level, it was good for some of us. Shifting gears now and talking about your career and, and in doing research for this interview, I, I noticed that, you know, you started your baseball writing career in 1998 and what, and what a year that was for baseball known as the summer of 98 and, you know, long gone summer, the ESPN documentary recently came out. And of course you were covering, you know, Barry Bonds and the San Francisco giants for the Oakland Tribune. So I'm just curious, like, to, you know, to start your career in that summer must have just been uh, an excitement thrill ride for a writer like yourself, being able to, you know, come up with stories on, you know, so much excitement happening in the sport. Yeah, first of all, great research on your part, because I consider myself kind of an obscure media figure, and you dug that up, so kudos to you. Uh, so as you mentioned, I was on the West Coast covering baseball for the first almost about 25 years of my career, but I'm actually from St. Louis. Mm. And so it was fun. Again, I was covering the Giants at that time, living in, in the Bay Area, but it was fun to see kind of the baseball world revolve around the Midwest. Mm. You know, it, it quickly became the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa home run chase, and that was fun for me to see. And I will tell you this, even though I covered a different team, if you were in the National League or, um, you know, you came across Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa that year, you were doing stories on them because it was that big. It didn't matter 
what team you were covering. Everybody wanted any kind of content on those two guys. Uh, I think some people have forgotten that now because we tend to see it through the prism of, you know, was it all meaningless because of the PEDs? At the time, nobody was saying that. It was the biggest deal in the world. And I can tell you some of my earliest memories just of being around the game are standing behind the batting cage and watching Mark McGuire take batting practice. I've never seen anything like it in the game, just in terms of how far he was hitting balls, um, how consistently he was hitting him a mile. It was really something to see. He was just a larger-than-life kind of persona then. Well, and for me, you know, Mark, I'm always, you know, a little bit conflicted. And, of course, I just recently watched the documentary because, obviously, you know, you know part of their legacy is the PEDs, you know, but – at the same time, you know, you look at where baseball was in 1998 coming after the strike in 94, and this was just a huge way to inject in excitement into the game that hadn't been seen before. So I think, you know, on one hand, you know, you, know, you look back and there's this, you know, debate about whether it's actually credible, but for a time, it certainly got a lot of young people into the game, something that baseball right at the, you know, at this current moment is struggling to do. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, God forbid we could be seeing a situation if, for example, this season ends up getting canceled again. Mm. Um, if the 20, after 2021, if there's another labor dispute, you could see a similar type of thing happen again, because we all know that baseball doesn't have quite the same traction as the NBA or the NFL do. Um, you know, where you are, I'm sure the NHL. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have the same pace as those sports, right? And so it's always a little bit of a struggle for baseball in this rapid fire kind of society we live in to capture as large a percentage as it would for those other sports. And you could see a crisis in the game. And, you know, I think traditionally this game has kind of rescued itself from itself. Something great comes along on the field and everybody gets captivated again, you know? There have been other scandals before, way back to 100 years ago, the, the Black Sox scandal, right? That created serious problems for the game. People didn't know if they could trust it. <clears throat> there have been people who cheated throughout the history of the game, whether it was spitballers, people scuffing the ball on the pitching side, whether it was something as ridiculous as the color barrier, mm -hmm. where for 60 years, black players couldn't play. So was Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Joe DiMaggio, were they playing against the best players in the world? I don't know. You know, the 1928 Yankees never played the 1928 St. Louis Stars, so we'll, we'll never know. But I do think you have to judge those players from the PD era, era among themselves. And every era, era of baseball is a little bit different, and we have to be cognizant of that. You mentioned how you grew up in St. Louis, and then you, of course, start your baseball career on the West Coast. Was it intimidating for you, Mark, to start your career in such a big market like the Bay Area? Um, it didn't feel like it at the time because I was, you know, I came, I went to graduate school at Berkeley. I went to journalism school at Cal Berkeley. And for me, I was just so hungry to cover major sporting events that I wasn't really pausing to think you know how intimidating it was it was a little different than in that you didn't see as many young people 
you know, with credentials back then. So I do remember at 28 when I got my first beat, I got onto the Giants beat, and these were all, you know, 39, 40, you know, 39 to 60-year-old men who'd been doing it a long time. That part was a little bit intimidating, and I learned a lot from the competition of it. And that's kind of how it traditionally worked, right? You would cover high schools, then maybe small colleges, then you might cover a major university sport, or whether it's football or basketball, and then eventually you get a pro beat. Um, but now with things like MLB.com, um, blogs, <clears throat> other thing, you're seeing a lot more access points. And I think that's great because we're drawing from a larger talent pool. And I think, I think that's where you're ultimately trying to get. And of course, you know, for you, you then, you know, after, you know, the Oakland Tribune, you work at, you know, the OC Register and then ESPN.com. And I'm just curious, you know, at these different stops along the way, how your baseball coverage has evolved. That's good. That's a really good question. I think I can tell you this. When I went to the Orange County Register, I, I was hired to cover the Angels. Mm. And that was like the number one beat at that newspaper and their sports department at that time, you know, along with the Ducks. They have two teams in Orange County, the Angels and the Ducks. Um, but I remember going in and thinking, you know, the LA Times has all these heavy-duty, big-name sports reporters. I'm not going to be intimidated by that. I've been doing it up in Oakland. I wasn't as well-known. But I'm going to try to, you know, provide the same tough, the same – really, you know, the same hardworking coverage that those people are providing. And that, that was my attitude going in. Um, and at times, probably I maybe was a little too hard on, on the team, maybe, because I was trying to show that I was like a big city reporter. Um, and so I gradually learned to sort of temper that a little bit. You have to be fair to the people you're covering. Um, and then ESPN, that was just a lot of fun, because if you'll recall at the time, I – we were, ESPN was starting all these city um, sports websites and we were part of ESPN LA. It was just kind of fun to be part of a new thing, right? Like we were kind of reinventing it and we all worked ridiculous hours. <laughs> um, it's funny, you're in Toronto. I remember one day I flew, I was covering the Angels at the time. I flew all the way back from Toronto. Land, I caught a 6 a.m. flight Toronto to LAX. Mm. And I remember I had to cover that night's game in Orange County that day. So it was like a 17-hour day. We all worked a ton of hours, but it was fun because we were starting something new. And we all kind of – it was a labor of love for all of us. So that was a lot of fun. And then The Athletic has been interesting because it's subscription-based. That's new. You're always sort of looking for that thing that's going to grab a lot of um, interest, a lot of – that people are just dying to get that content, so they're willing to subscribe for it. And that's been another lesson for me. So the whole thing, I've really been kind of lucky. And I don't know why I've had this kind of luck, but I have. Well, a lot of journalists need some luck along the way. I mean, you know, for sure, you know, you go, I mean, you, you say, wow, you know, you know how to write, you know, you're talented, all this. But, like, you know, you can't underestimate the power of luck, you know, being at the right place at the right time. Because I feel like, you know, in an industry that's, you know, ever-changing and evolving, you know, you need that little bit of luck. But I always think that, like, the best people will always find the opportunities. And I just think that, you know, even, you know, you know, it's a long journey, a, a journalism career. So, it, you know, it, it's interesting to see the different stops along the way. Right. And, you know, if I were to give one piece of advice to a young person, try to get it, 
be per, you know, persevere. Mm. Cause you're going to have people tell, you no 50 times to your face and it doesn't feel good at the time. But if you think you can do it, if you believe in your writing ability, if you believe in your ability to go get answers and your reporting ability, keep going. If it's what you love, keep going. Just, you'll find an outlet to do what you want to do if, if you're intent on it, I think. You mentioned that you covered the Angels. Do you have any good Vladimir Guerrero stories? I know that his son is currently in Toronto right now, but uh, do you have any good stories that are, that are, that are worth sharing? Very distinct. First of all, I was able to visit Vlad Guerrero Sr. in the Dominican Republic, and that was something I'll never forget. That was really a lot of fun. He is a, he's a very quiet man. I don't know what his son is like because mm. the last time I saw him, he was about seven years old. Mm. Um, and I, dis, I do distinctly recall Vlad Jr. at five years old. He still had a pacifier on my on a head, I swear to God. And he would imitate other angels' batting stances, especially as a dad's, of course, right? Yeah. And, and he was five years old and I do remember his dad would toss him balls and he was ripping them into left field. Mm. Like I got kids and they're both good ball players at five years old. They couldn't hit the ball to the shortstop. This <laughs> kid was really, you could see it just had a different set of genes. Right. Mm-hmm. And his dad was just something else to watch. I mean, you're talking about, I think one of the most talented baseball players that's ever lived. And the kid obviously got those genes. No doubt. I mean, you know, Vlad Jr., I, I, I know we love him in Toronto. And, like, while he may have not had, like, the best rookie season ever, like, at the same time, like, there were so many expectations put on him given how well he, you know, he was doing in, in AAA and just the natural power from his swing. So I feel like some of the expectations from not just Toronto, but, like, baseball in general were just a, a bit unfair. But, like, he's someone that I think is going to have a great career if he just continues, you know, on the path to success. Yeah, no doubt. And I think one of that's one of the perils right now, because there's so much attention given to minor league prospects that didn't Mm -hmm. used to be the case, you know, when his dad was coming up, you know, I mean, there's so many stories from his dad's career of going to a tryout for the Dodgers and not having spikes. So he had to borrow his cousins and they were three is too large and so he didn't show his speed you know all sorts of stuff like that but of course Vlad Jr. grew up in relative affluence and so he had you know access to things that his father didn't have and I think I think that's another part of the story as well baseball can be kind of an expensive sport and that's one of the things when you look at who's playing it that's one of the limiting factors and it's kind of unfair in a way to young players and you mentioned, Mark, how, you know, you transition over to the athletic and you're now covering the St. Louis Cardinals. And my question is just, you know, because you've spent so long on the West Coast covering teams. Now you come to cover the Cardinals. Was it a bit of a, you know, a challenge at first to stand out from the beat in, and writers that have been there for much longer than you have? Or did you think that your experience covering baseball already prepared you for this new challenge? I always took it as the latter for the most part. Um, but there was definitely a lack of institutional knowledge initially when compared to some of the people who had worked 
in this market. I think what helped me is that my whole childhood was here and I, I was a big fan as a kid. So those 80s teams, you know, 1982, 85, 87, they were in the World Series three times between when I was 10 and 20. So I did know about Cardinals history up to that point. But as I moved to the West Coast and I was involved with other things, covering other sports, eventually covering other teams, as you mentioned, I did sort of lose track, especially when I was covering the American League of what was going on with the Cardinals. So that did take some time to get to know how their, um, their system works, their organization, who you can talk to to get information from, but also just the way the fan base thinks. Because if you think about a Dodgers fan versus a Cardinals fan, very different parts of the country, different sociologies, different. Um, so, so that was a little bit different adjusting to that. And I, I, I've seen cases where, you know, the fan base has just reacted very differently to the types of stories I was writing. Can you maybe dive into that? Like just, you know, describe how the different fan bases would react. Like, w would you say that, that the Cardinals are a lot more, you know, you know, passionate i mean like both are passionate but like just react more compared to dodgers fans or vice versa well one of the things that's different just extremely different and one is not better than the other but just sociologically politically very different kinds of parts of the country so if for example like with some of the health stuff that's going on now amazingly in in our country that has somehow become a political issue, whether you should wear a mask or you shouldn't wear a mask. So what I would say is the types of, and a lot of this is just sort of me reading between the lines, the reactions on Twitter or something mm -hmm. like that. And I do think social media can be a little bit distracting and take you away from you know what most people are thinking because it's a, it's a small minority of people who are very vocal with their opinions. But just in terms of that type of stuff, the reactions have been different. But also, I think because the Cardinals for many years were the furthest west and the furthest south of any team in Major League Baseball for like 60 years, mm -hmm. you do have a culture here that is very Cardinals-oriented versus MLB-oriented. So. You do find, I think, that people here will reference something, compare something to something that happened in Cardinals history and not necessarily to something that happened with another major league team. So I have noticed that. I guess the pejorative word would be a little more provincial here, but I think a, another way of looking at it is just a very passionate local regional fan base that you have here. And that's really through all the Deep South, a lot of the you know near western states oklahoma colorado so you do have a lot it's a very strong regional fan base the cardinals and you hit the nail on the head with like you know just passionate and regional and i think like anytime you see the cardinals make a run in the playoffs whether it was the 2011 world series win and you know even last year when they made the nlcs like just passionate like you can see it you know on the TV screen at Bush Stadium. It's one of the best uh, ballparks in, uh, in the big leagues. But, uh, but Mark, I want to I wanna end by just, you know, maybe asking you a question about, you know, just writing on baseball, especially, you know, as it, as it gets back up again. Because, you know, look, I mean, like, there, there are young writers more now, as you mentioned earlier, out there covering 
big league teams compared to when you first started out in, in the business. So I'm just curious if you have any advice for, for, for a young writer who's, you know, who, who gets this big opportunity to cover a big beat, but recognizes, wow, like it's 162 game grind in normal times. And you got to, you know, figure out real unique ways to, you know, keep yourself fresh and stand out from the pack. I would say two things. The part about the 162-game grind, there's nothing I can say that would prepare someone for that. <laughs> you know, I, we were talking, you know, about when I started a 1,000 years ago. And I remember the first month on the beat, I got sick like three times because I was getting on airplane flights so often. And I just wasn't prepared for the, the rigors of having to go to work every day from 2.30 till 12.30 at night. Mm -hmm. um, and it did grind after a while. Um, but you do really get it in your skin. It gets in your blood. And it's really hard to kind of leave the scene. It's a, it's a fun thing to be around. And on, in terms of what I would advise young, young writers to do, it's always push the envelope. You know, these teams are so good now at spinning their own narratives, right? And, and, and making it seem as if everything's always great. And, you know, we're doing things in the best interest of our fan base. It's not always the case. These are corporations like any other corporations, big businesses. Push the envelope. Always have one more conversation. Don't just take people, you know, because they say this is the way it's happening. If you think it's not happening that way and you have an inkling, go talk to some other people who might be able to tell you what's really going on. Always try to find the story beneath the story because they're not always that apparent. And when you do that, that's going to naturally make you stand out you're going to have stuff that's different. And I think people will gravitate to that if it feels authentic and real, that's going to make you stand out. And so I would say, do that and do it in your own voice. Be confident with what you have to say about it and what you're finding out, trust your sources and just go for it. That would be my best advice that I could come up with. Some great advice, Mark Saxon. He's a senior MLB writer at The Athletic. He covers the St. Louis Cardinals. Make sure to check out his content on that outlet. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the Wii Sports Quarantine Chronicles today and all the best for the 2020 season. Hopefully it starts and finishes as scheduled. Lucas, it was a really uh, enjoyable conversation, very thoughtful questions, and I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much, and good luck to you.